And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Sean Rittenauer. He's Professor of Economics, Grove City College. Dr. Rittenauer, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me back. It's it's always a pleasure. You know, I was reflecting earlier before we opened the mic how that, uh, I, I don't know how I came across you, and then I realized, wait a minute, I remember now. I sent a note to, uh, I think, the Mises Institute, and I said, do you have any uh, person on, that you could recommend we could interview from a Christian perspective on economics? And that's I think that was the lead that they gave that ended up us uh, kind of coming to know each other. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it did. Yeah. So today, what I want to do is um, for our listeners, as you're listening to this, kind of picture a, a picnic. You know, it's finally June, and um, gathered around with friends, maybe your backyard, some hamburgers and chips and salads, and just sitting down and having a good old chat with some friends. And in this case, you want to talk about economics. And uh, Dr. Rittnor walks up, and um, we can ask him some questions. So that's that's kind of what's in the back of my mind, kind of an informal discussion today. Now, June is um, kind of wedding month. Quite often it is. Many couples choose to get married in June. I wonder, as we think about these young people getting ready to become married, and uh, particularly with respect to their finances, Kind of simple, but uh, any any pointers you might have for them? Uh, sure. Um, I would say, I mean, the, the short answer is don't spend more than you bring in in terms of uh, salary or earnings or whatnot. But then uh, that's like, oh, duh. <laughs> so how do we do that? <laughs> I would say mainly judging from my own experience, I mean, I know that everybody's situation is unique, and so one person's experience doesn't necessarily transfer directly. But from my own experience, I've found that it is helpful to budget to some extent uh, in some way to kind of keep track of how, you know, where the money is coming in and, and where it's going out in particular. And I know a lot of people, when, when we got married, we went to a marriage, my wife and I uh, first got married uh, be 25 years ago, by the way, this uh, summer. Oh, wow. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, But our first year of marriage, we went to a marriage conference, and it was a, it was a Christian marriage conference, and they had a section on finance, and uh, they were introducing us to some of the work done by uh, Larry Burkett. Mm. And um, I think Crown Financial Ministries they have kind of sort of taken over what he had done. Sure. And um, I found his stuff to be very helpful, um, thankfully, my my mother and father raised me to be somewhat frugal and to pay attention about uh, financial matters. So it wasn't a hard sell for me um, or my wife, for that matter. And so one of the things that they stressed was budgeting. And so we tried to be very meticulous, and we found that there was a lot of things that sort of uh, there was a lot of keeping track of stuff that, in the long run, I wasn't sure we really needed to keep track uh, about. But the one thing that did, I think, more than anything else matter for us was the housing budget. And mm. you know, what I found is that couples will either be in good shape or get themselves in a very stressful situation based primarily on uh, what are they doing with the house and primarily people buying too big a house mm. uh, for their budget. Um, I remember when... The first several years of our marriage, we just rented uh, because we, 
we well we knew some living arrangements were going to be pretty temporary, uh, so it just didn't make sense to get into a house and then run the risk of not being able to sell it fast enough. And so we rented the first year of our marriage. Then we moved, uh, and when I went entered graduate school, we rented the time I was there. And then after I got my first job in Missouri, we rented for another three years. And mm-hmm. um, when I got my first job, we pretty soon after that started looking for uh, a home. And we did not at that time as yet have any children. And so we had made an agreement that, and it made sense, and I think this is really important, at least it was for us, that when we did buy a home, we wanted uh, any loan that we took out to be structured based only on my income, mm. so that if children did come along, uh, my wife, we'd be completely financially free for her to stay home uh, with the children and, and teach them and, and, and rear them. And that was a, a fantastic decision for us, um, because that, that's essentially what happened longer term. Uh, and another thing was, it was, and it's funny too, was we walked into the bank to get pre-qualified, and the the loan officer told us, you know, based on our credit rating, uh, which was good, uh, you know, how much they they'd be how much they'd be willing to to lend to yes, us. Yes. And it was one of those things internally. Internally, I was thinking, are you kidding me? And my jaw was dropping. And I was thinking, who's going to pay for this? How do you? Who's going to pay this mortgage that you're going to lend me? And on the outside, I'm just saying, oh, interesting, interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I was trying not to look so shocked, and I was just, I, I was blown away how, I was blown away by how easy it was, and this would have been back in, oh, 1990, 99, probably, mm-hmm. uh, how easy it was for somebody to just give me tens of thousands of dollars and and put me immediately that much in debt. Mm. Well, um, we almost we almost got ourselves into a pickle. Um, we we saw this home that we liked, and we without really doing any serious calculations, we made an offer that was that would have would have stressed us pretty significantly. But thankfully, in in God's providence, was a really too low an offer for the owner of the house. Mm-hmm. And so the owner just rejected it outright. And, you know, we were a little disappointed. And I said, you know what? We really haven't done due diligence. Let's go back and run the numbers. And I looked at the numbers, and I came back to um, my wife, and I said, we had no business actually (laughs) even bidding on this house. And I'm so thankful that God, uh, you know, kept us and protected us from getting ourselves in that situation. Yeah, the Lord watched over you. You're not kidding. It's so easy to get head over heels in debt and then realize, oh, no, what have I done? And like you say, then then maybe you lose an income and you're really in trouble. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so we backed off and went back and realized, well, we needed to wait and save a much more significant amount for a down payment that would allow us to get into a home with a lower monthly mortgage payment that was manageable. And so uh, that's what we did. And, you know, I would say within, oh, probably within a year's time, the Lord provided such a house. And that decision right there set us up and has benefited us for, you know, for years and years and years, because what that allowed us to do was not 
sort of get behind the financial eight ball at that period of time. And so then when came time and I took the job here at Grove City, we was able to sell the house in Missouri and come out here and, and again, put ourselves in another situation where we were able to keep the housing payment well within the budget and everything, as far as that goes, has been, you know, has been, uh, has been really not very stressful, uh, not like it would have been if, if we would have uh, got too big a house. And so I think it's really important that you just say, you know what, the Lord's sovereign in all these things, and the Lord knows what's good for us. And one of the things that's not good for us is to be heavily in debt and to be in over our heads and not be good stewards of the income that he actually did give us. And so, you know, be patient, trust him, and, uh, you know, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path mm-hmm. straight. He will, he will bless you as he sees fit. And um, we've, I've found just in our life that if you get the housing budget, you know, down, the rest of the budget sort of sorts itself out. Because the, the housing budget, as long as, as long as you don't go crazy and are, you know, some people are just profligate and they have to have all the new electronic gadgets, they have to have the new car, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, you know, you can, yeah, and they have to, they spend gobs of money on entertainment. But as long as you're able to sort of just have a good sense of what do I need versus what do I want, and you don't get yourself into trouble over a house, a lot of times, at least for us, the budget, the rest of the budget sort of handled itself. But if you get in trouble, with a big housing payment, it's very difficult to make up for it, you know, scrimping an extra $5 here and there on other items because the housing budget is so big, it's just, it's just hard to make up. So that, to me, if, you know, if sometimes, you know, just not too long ago I had a, a younger man ask me, you know, for some advice regarding family budgeting, and he was thinking about getting married, and that the number one thing is be really thoughtful about your housing decision, and that may mean for a number of years you're going to have to rent, and there's nothing wrong with that. If if you have to rent in order to allow for some time to save and accumulate a housing payment, I think that's that can be a very good move. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I think of uh, our youngest son, uh, Nathan, and he's um, been married almost two years now. Him and his wife live in a, a very small place they're renting, and, you know, they're saving up. Uh, someday they'll be able to afford a house, but they've been very careful not to overextend themselves. And I, both my wife and I are very proud in a good way of, of our son and daughter-in-law for being so frugal. You mentioned something about saving. Uh, it's hard to save. People, some people, um, have a tendency <laughs> to let the money burn a hole in their pocket, you know, and have a thrill from buying something that ends up sitting around anyway. But for saving, years ago, Debbie's parents in particular, my wife's parents, would give the kids a savings bond now and then. And those were the days when savings bonds would would tend to grow. And um, yet nowadays, uh, interest rates are so low, you almost feel like you're discouraged from saving or buying a savings bond. Any Any practical pointers regarding savings well i i think you make a couple of excellent points i um another aspect of managing the family budget over time is that one thing you do want to do is establish a pattern of savings of some amount any amount is better than no amount because 
over time, you know, one of the ways you build up wealth is by, you know, spending less than you bring in in terms of wages or salaries or other types of income. And then that amount that you don't spend on consumer goods, that is savings. And you, there are different avenues where you can put the savings. If you need it to be liquid, you can put it into a savings account. But again, the quantitative easing that the Federal Reserve has engaged in since 2008, it was almost, I would, I would say, frankly, in an ideal world, be criminal uh, because of, of what it does to, to the value of people's savings. I mean, for instance, yeah, you know, my parents have been frugal, extremely frugal and saved, and now, you know, what, what do they get for it? They get hardly anything in terms of interest. Yeah. And so the, the incentive is, it, it creates a tremendous moral hazard because the incentive is then don't, don't save and put it in something relatively safe, like a savings account or a certificate of deposit or, or a savings bond or anything like that. Mm-hmm. If you want to get some decent income, you've got to channel it into more risky investments. And, you know, sometimes those investments pay off, but the, the, you know, the moral hazard is they get challenged into risky investments that by their nature don't all pay off. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the th- things are made even worse because, you know, if you're, in this, if you're a financial institution, it's no problem. The, the, the bigger you are, the more risky investments, the more profligate you are in your, in your uh, risk and in your lending, well, that's okay. Um, the government's going to will bail you out, <laughs> and and so right. uh, we, we, you know they don't have to worry about that. But meanwhile, the average citizen gets clobbered because uh, the interest on their savings isn't often isn't even enough to to match inflation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a big word, and I was wondering if you could explain what what that is. This is entering into the college course now, but really quick, you mentioned quantitative easing. What does that mean? Ah uh, yes, uh, quantitative easing is the um, the stated sort of uh, policy of monetary inflation that the Federal Reserve engaged in, uh, beginning in 2008. And what it was, they called it quantitative easing. What they should have just called it was creating massive amounts of money, because that's <laughs> what it was. Um, there was a period of time in 2008 where the Federal Reserve was creating, out of thin air, mind you, a billion dollars every day. Out of thin air? Yes. It's shocking. The Federal Reserve has a monopoly, a legal monopoly, on issuing currency, on issuing money. And so what it does is when it wants to, in their mind, stimulate the economy or keep the economy from collapsing, they will just create uh, dollars using a computer, a computer, uh, so punching in a few uh, keystrokes, and on their accounts where there wasn't money before now, it's, we get a billion new dollars today, and they don't just create the money to sit on their accounts. They create the money so then they can spend it buying uh, treasury bonds in the bond market, and then those uh, individuals and or banks that sell the bonds to the Fed and their friendly investment bankers, that that billion dollars winds up in bank reserves in commercial banks, and then the commercial banks loan out that new money, but at a fraction reserve basis. And so instead of just having another billion dollars in the economy, there's actually five or ten billion dollars in the economy. And that, of course, leads to an increase in the money supply over time, 
leads to increased spending, increases demand for goods, and increases in prices, and then we get the price inflation that, that everybody knows about. Mm. So quantitative easing was a specific policy that was engaged in purposely to increase the, the quantity of uh, money, and specifically bank reserves. I mean, I think initially the goal was not necessarily to stimulate the economy in an inflationary way, what they were trying to do was to prop up a lot of uh, shaky commercial banks and investment houses because after the, the credit bubble burst in 2008, you know, a lot of people were unsure about what were the value of the assets in some of these. And, you know, a couple of famous, uh, a couple, you know, I know Countrywide Mortgage uh, went bankrupt. Um, it, I think Lehman Brothers went went under and and or Bear Stearns. I, I always I can't I never remember <laughs> one of them went under and the other one was bought by somebody. But in any event, in an effort to not have that continue to happen, they just want to inject you know gobs uh, and that's a technical term gobs <laughs> of money into the banking system to keep everything afloat. And that sounds great, but the problem is interest rates are driven down. And so mm. the people that are savers get punished big time. There it is. And then on top of that, entrepreneurs who are able to borrow money at an artificially low rate, they're able to take on uh, investment projects or at least begin investment projects that look profitable only because they're able to borrow at cheap rates. And then over time, uh, when it becomes clear that these projects were only viable because of the artificially cheap rates if the interest rates when the interest rates start has started they've started to inch up a little bit but if they ever start to, to sort of normalize a lot of these projects will be shown to be completely insolvent and yeah. uh, unsustainable and then we'll be right back to where we were and and I'll tell you right now it's really it's an interesting time there's there's um you know month by month you get sort of uh conflicting conflicting signals right yes. Un unemployment rate looks you know looks really good is is really low and the next month it comes out and retail sales are really down and you're like what what's going on well when yeah. you start to get this competing good news bad news stuff i think it's 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 time to to really pay attention because um it's yeah, you know it, it it's hard it's hard to know uh, about about you know how to time these things but it, it just seems to me that when when you get a lot of conflicting information coming out, you could be we could be near another turning point. Mm, yeah, good point. And, and that's a that's a negative turning point. Yeah, yes, yes. And uh, we've got maybe five minutes left, and that kind of brings up the next question I had here. Just again for the listeners, uh, we're talking with Dr. Sean Rittnar, professor of economics, Grove City College, and we're having a sort of a a picnic chat. Imagine you're in your backyard with friends around, hamburgers, chips, salads, and just sat down. You're talking to economics. Um, we we do have a new administration in Washington now, and um, are are you seeing any signs at all of the U.S. Uh, experiencing more of a free market? That's certainly your interest and my interest. Or will it just be more of the same? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think I do think that long term. To get something beneficial, there has to be a significant uh, change in the culture beyond just the presidency. Sure. I mean, I would not be surprised, you know, after who knows how long, if, if, if President Trump 
even has four years or eight years, um, even four, I think that there could be a considerable backlash against what was perceived as whatever his policies were. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to have long-term, a long-term positive movement, we have to have a change in the broader culture. Now, um, so, but, but having said that, in terms of his particular presidency, I think it's, it's kind of been a mixed bag. Um, I think that a lot of his... Um, a lot of his mercantilist, uh, protectionist, high-tariff uh, quota rhetoric is, is, not, is not very helpful at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all that does is you know, wanting to um, you know, restrict actual mutually beneficial exchange. Um, now, it, everything, the, the water's pretty muddy because even our so-called free trade agreements, they're not real free trade agreements, they're managed trade agreements. And so... Their agreements to give preferential treatments to certain trading partners and not to others, and there's a whole host of regulations that 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 are often that accompany these agreements, and so it's hard to say really how much how much free trade is made possible by so-called free trade agreements, but but I, I don't think the solution is just to say where are we now? Let's slap on more tariffs and more quotas. Right. Um, at the same time, I think he has made some positive moves. I think in in reg, in, in some regulatory areas. Um, I, I think I think frankly, uh, so far, what I've heard uh, relating to education has been by and large very positive. I know um, he just he his most recent budget. Uh, there were certain certain politicians who were trying to make hay, talking about how he was gutting uh, the government education budget and money uh, and 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 by gutting, by the way. They're talking about a drop in, I don't know, is it 20-some billion dollars, which is a drop in the bucket. <laughs> but, I mean, that's like, that's like draconian cuts or something. Um, but, I, you know, in terms of, you know, they were high, still highly critical of the Secretary of Education, DeVos. And I, and I was looking at, I was listening to somebody, it was some politician, and she was decrying and said, this is, it's, this is, this is just like, this is a, a, a crime against education <laughs> because they're wanting to cut out government funding for this program and that program and reducing this program. And I thought, I thought every single one of those things that this person thought was horrible, I thought it was a move in the right direction. Yeah, I know what you mean. And for those of us who actually homeschooled, you know, we were paying our taxes and uh you know did our children didn't benefit obviously we were home educating we paid for all the materials and all that but and it works out just fine you don't can i be radical and say you don't really need a government education but i i'll probably take some heat for that um oh, i i think you're exa- i think you're exactly right i mean I, we we were able to get along without it for a long period of time oh yeah and, and to the extent that we to the extent that a uh, particular local government feels like it needs to be involved. You know, to me, that you know, if if they want to, yeah, I would not agree with it. But if they want to have a lot of government involvement in education in Massachusetts, I say fine. They can do what they want to do. That's Massachusetts, right? But there's absolutely no reason for the for the national, the general government headquartered in Washington, D.C., yeah. to, to be involved in education and dictate what has to be taught yeah. and how it has to be taught, and then you know, and then take money from different people and give it to other people. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just think the, there's, there's so much wrong with that that any move, uh, we're probably we're not going to get a free society overnight. It's going to take a long march 
and we have to be willing to just take baby steps. Whenever we can take a baby step, take a baby step. If we can take a, a you know a, a grown up step, we'll take a grown up step. <laughs> but any step moving us in the right direction is is better. And I think so far in education, we've seen that. I think backing off some of the the EPA. Um, Craziness is is a good thing. So I, I do think on the regulatory side, I've seen some some positive movement. Okay, well that's helpful. Um, I, I I think the overall budget is still not too good. I mean, Trump's talking about increasing government spending by over a trillion dollars over the next you know ten years or whatever. I mean that to me is not much different than what we would have had with oh, well, President Obama or or uh, or Hillary Clinton. It gets back to that initial uh, statement you said regarding our own families: don't spend more than you bring in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the government violates its own its own recommendations. The the Federal Reserve on its family finance page says don't borrow money and then try to pay for it with a credit card payment yeah. by continually increasing. Well, the government that's exactly what the government does when it raises the debt ceiling every so many years. Now, we're out of time, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity. If someone wants to go to Grove City College, how do they do that? Oh, well, the best thing to do, I would say, take a look at uh, the webpage at gcc.edu. Um, you can go there and look at all the different academic programs. They can contact me personally if they're, especially if they're interested in economics. Uh, it's srrittenauer at gcc.edu, and um, I could get them in touch with the uh, admissions people. And uh, we have people that would be happy to talk to you. And uh, it's a great place. It's a great place to get a quality education in economics or, or in any other subject, really, from a Christian perspective. Oh, amen to that. Today we've been talking with Dr. Sean Rittenauer, Professor of Economics, Grove City College. Dr. Rittenauer, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's, it's always a treat. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer 